0: God, our Heavenly Father, we uh, honor Your sovereignty, Your omniscience, Your omnipotence, Your goodness, Your grace, all the traits of the Godhead we uh, honor here this morning. We know that You are these things because Your Word has laid them out and and our hearts have confirmed them. And our experience as we have trusted Christ and followed Him has also shown us that You are good and worthy of all that we sing about. And so God, thank you that you are who you are. And God, thank you that you have revealed yourself in the written word. We're uh, enamored with that here at Scottsdale Bible Church. We love your word. We teach it regularly. And uh, Lord, we desire to dig deep and learn more about you so that we might be prepared for what lies ahead. So God, as we continue on in this series on prophecy that we're in, uh, looking at the book of Daniel, I pray, God, that we might rightly understand what is arguably one of the most difficult texts in the entire Bible. If ever you gave us ears to hear and eyes to see, as Jesus talked about, give that to us now, we pray, and give us unity. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, as I said in my prayer this morning, we are up against one of the most difficult and debated passages in the entire Bible. We've been working our way through the latter half of the book of Daniel, and I'm telling you, this could easily be the most difficult passage of the entire Bible that we're going to look at today. This passage that we're going to look at is described by Stephen Miller, a scholar at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, as, and I quote, four of the most controversial verses in the Bible and the most difficult text in the book. This passage even caused the great Reformation leader, John Calvin, to admit that there were room for diverse views here, something he didn't do very often in his interpretation of Scripture, because he just saw way too much ambiguity and room for differences in this passage. In fact, look up here on the screen and listen how he says it when commenting on this exact passage in his commentaries. He says, I confess here the existence of such great differences between ancient writers that we must use conjecture because we have no certain explanation to bring forward which can point out as the only sufficient one. Now, folks, you'd be hard pressed to find John Calvin being that generous when it came to an interpretation of a particular passage, but he read Daniel 9, the passage that we're going to look at here this morning, and that's the conclusion that he came up with. Scholars have been debating this passage for over 2,500 years. Their interpretations have been all over the map, even leading to the development of entire schools of thought when it comes to the nature of prophecy and end times literature as found in the Bible. And so let's read right now this passage that we've been talking about. Let's read the four verses that have created such a stir among Bible-believing Christians over the years. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. We're going to park in front of this passage for our entire time here this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, it'd be really cool for you to have one in front of you anyways. And so there's a really good chance that there's a pew Bible there in front of you. I'm even going to give you the page number. You ready for this? Page 747. Like an airplane. 747, you'll find Daniel 9, beginning at verse 24. If you're still digging your heels in and refuse to have an open Bible, I'll have the scripture on me behind the screen. So, or on the screen behind me. So, hey, let's read it. The angel Gabriel is speaking. He's giving Daniel a vision of what is to come. It's 539 B.C., and here's what he says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing." And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator." And some of you are thinking right now, what's the big deal, Rasmussen? I get it. I mean, that's an easy thing to understand, right? Not at all. In fact, if your head is swimming right now, you're normal. I have been trying to work through this stuff for 20 years as a pastor and uh, even longer uh, as a Christian, And, and I'm telling you, this is a hard passage to understand. Now, believe it or not, though this is a difficult passage to understand, and as we said, it's certainly debatable, very controversial in what it's saying here, it's not as complicated to understanding the flow of this passage as it might seem at first glance. And so check this out. When you break this passage down into its most simple components, there are basically three handles in this passage that once you grab onto will allow you to steer through the various options you can begin to make sense of what this just might be saying so look up here at the screen. Here are the three handles. Handle one is the 70 weeks of verse 24, complete with the 6 description of what is going to take place during those 70 weeks. And then you have the second handle, which are the seven weeks and the 62 weeks of verses 25 to 26a there. And then the third handle is the one week of verses 26b to 27 that includes that famous abominations of desolations that Jesus also referenced. We saw that last week in Matthew 24. These are the three handles, folks, I need you to grab onto with me as we dive into the deep end of Daniel 9 here the 70 weeks, and then the 7 and the 62 weeks, and then the one week. And as we grab onto them, I'm going to walk you through some of the various interpretations that people have come up with over the years. And then as I do that, I'm going to share with you where I land on all of this stuff as well. And so before we even go to the interpretations, look again at verse 25 and notice with me how this all begins. In fact, I would argue here that verse, uh, actually verse 24, verse 24 is the key verse in this entire prophecy. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, one of the first things that you and I need to wrestle with with this passage here is the meaning of that phrase 70 weeks. What does it mean when it says 70 weeks? In the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, this phrase is literally translated, now don't miss this, 77s or better yet, 70 times 7. That's its most literal translation, which means that it could mean 70 times 7 days, or 70 times 7 weeks, or 70 times 7 years, or 70 times 7 months, or even 70 times 7 indefinite periods of time. It doesn't say And so though it's debatable, what the majority of scholars land on, however, is the interpretation that this is 70 times 7 years for the simple reason that Leviticus chapter 25 verse 8 uses very similar language here and it makes it clear that it's 70 times 7 years being talked about. And so almost surely what Daniel is referring here is a time period of 490 years. Seventy times seven years is what he's talking about here. And then in verses 25 to 27, he makes a further distinction between seven times seven years, which is 49 years, and then 62 times seven years, which is 434 years, and then a final week or seven, which is seven years for a total of 490. And so simply note at this point folks that whatever is taking place here in this prophecy of daniel 9 is going to occur over a period of 490 years broken down into three time periods 49 434 and then seven and then right on the coattails of this notice the description then in verse 24 I'm telling you verse 24 is going to be the key to understanding this entire prophecy where people land on their ver- interpretation of verse 24 will determine all the rest. And in verse 24, it's talking about what will occur over this entire 490-year period, and it's a sixfold description. "...to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place." It's a pretty detailed description, wouldn't you say, of what's going to happen to God's people during this 490-year period. And then obviously, verses 25 to 27, break it down into different periods, the different handles of what's going to happen at each different mark. The 49-year mark, the 43 mark, and then the final week of seven years. And so maybe you can see now why this breakdown into the three handles, give me a click here, guys, is so key, Because once you can understand that it's 490 years being talked about, the three handles are how do we understand the 490 years as a whole, and then how do we make sense of that first 483 years, the second handle, 7 weeks and 62 weeks, and then what's that last week with this abomination of desolations being talked about here as well. And folks, once you've gotten this far, you're ready to understand the four main views that have developed over the years of what this might be describing here. I want to give you a very quick overview of the four main views. Now let me just say one thing before I dive into these things. And that is your head is going to be swimming in about approximately 14 and a half minutes. And the reason is, because the first service experienced that, and no offense to you guys, but they're older, wiser, and more biblically literate than many of you, and so they just are, I'm telling you, our first service is sharp people, they are there, they're your grandparents, they've read the Bible a lot, and they were going like this after about 14 and a half minutes, because I'm going to try to give you 2,500 years of theological inquiry into these, uh, into this passage, and, and give you a Cliff Notes version. So if your head swims during this time, just chill out. We're going to make sense of this in a few minutes. But we need to understand what the four main positions are. So look up here on the screen. The first view is known as the Maccabean view the Maccabean view. And it basically asserts that all of this prophecy took place in the 2nd century B.C. with the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We looked at this a few weeks ago, complete with the Maccabean revolt that occurred in 164 B.C. in which they now celebrate Hanukkah about. And so according to this view, this description of verse 24 then is detailing all the liberation and the freedom that the Jews experienced with the restoration of the temple and Jerusalem in 164 B.C., it's giving a prophecy about that, while verses 25 and 27 are describing the period of rebuilding the temple in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, and then the persecution that would come under Antiochus in the 2nd century B.C. And though all of this did indeed happen, we saw that when we studied Daniel 7 and 8, The problem with seeing Daniel 9 as talking about this, as this prophecy is talking about this, is that it doesn't fit the description. I mean, verse 24 here is way too strong to describe the Maccabean incident. It says that it's going to put an end to sin, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet. I mean, that stuff didn't happen in the second century BC. I'm going to argue here in a minute that that stuff hasn't happened yet. And so the reality is I don't think it's talking about the Maccabean revolt of the second century BC. Plus when you do the math of 490 years there's no way to make it work. 490 years is way too long of a period. That event back in the second century happened way too close to Daniel's time for it to actually fit the timeline that Daniel gives in his prophecy here. So as a result of this, the majority of evangelical biblical scholars dismiss this view, though the reason I share it with you is that it's held by many Jewish scholars even to this day. Now, a second view that some have adopted then is what is called the preterist view. The preterist view. And it basically asserts that this entire prophecy is about Jesus' first coming 2,000 years ago and that it ended with the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., it's not hard to understand. The word preterist comes from the Latin praetor, which means past or beyond. So if you adopt a preterist interpretation of Daniel 9, you're simply saying that it's all occurred in the past. We're beyond the fulfilling of that prophecy. It's already been fulfilled in the first century AD. And to accomplish this interpretation, they have to take a somewhat symbolic view of the 490 years. Obviously, because this prophecy was given in about five uh, what is it, 550 BC and 490 years would not lead you up to 70 AD. And so a preterist has to do some symbolic stuff with the years here in their understanding of it. And then also they have to see the sixfold description here in more spiritual terms rather than in more literal terms. So for instance, when it says here in verse 24 that there is an end to sin and everlasting righteousness brought in what a preterist would do is say well when christ died on a cross for our sins he he put an end to sin on a spiritual level because we're all forgiven for our sins and he brought in everlasting righteousness meaning the positional righteousness that we now have in christ you see what they do with the passage here so they say it's kind of a spiritual thing happening here though it's not literally played out in our lives they spiritualize this passage here the seven weeks of verse 25 refers to the time period from Daniel giving the prophecy to when the temple was rebuilt in Ezra's day around 400 BC. The 62 weeks refers to the time of the rebuilding of the temple to Christ's first coming. That kind of fits. But then the final week refers to for the time of Christ all the way till 70 AD. It doesn't fit at all. And so again this is a legitimate and possible interpretation one that was held by the famous reformer john calvin but for the reasons i've been hinting to i.e. not fitting the 490 years and not being a literal fulfilling of this prophecy i don't think it's the best interpretation in my opinion so there's a third view that has gained popularity over the years and it's what is known as the ah millennial view the A millennial view and this one, again, like the preterist one, sees both the 490 years as well as the six fold description as symbolic in nature, but sees them symbolically very different than the preterist view. Ah, millennial, don't let that word throw you, it simply means no millennium. If you put an A before a word many times, it means the opposite of. So asexual means animals that don't reproduce sexually. Atypical means something not typical. Atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. And so an amillennial is simply somebody who doesn't believe there's going to be a literal millennium that Revelation talks about, a 1,000-year reign of Christ. They see that as a symbolic representation of Christ ruling through His church, so they call themselves a-millennial. And that's exactly what they do with Daniel 9 here. They see the 490 years as symbolically representing a very long period of time. They see the smaller portion, the 49 years, as representing the time from Daniel giving the prophecy to Christ's time. And then they see the larger portion, the 62 weeks, representing the time of Christ until the time of the tribulation, which is still to come. And then they see the final week as a very long tribulation period that will eventually culminate with the second return of Christ and ushering us into the eternal state. And obviously there's a lot of symbolic and spiritual interpretation going on here. I mean, the description that Daniel gives here in certain places of the sanctuary being destroyed and the city being destroyed and an end to sacrifice and offering, they don't take literally as far as this happening to uh, the nation Israel, but it's something that will happen figuratively in and through the church. And and again, though this sounds kind of a fishy thing, it's a very legitimate interpretation of... Prophetic literature is full of symbolic things, if you've ever read the book of Revelation. So to see Daniel 9 as symbolic is not necessarily wrong. It's a legitimate interpretation and possible. I just don't think it best fits the context here. I think Daniel's being more literal here, and I think a plain reading of the text is the best way to read Daniel 9. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, let's understand what I'm doing here. I dissed option number one, the Maccabean view. Did you guys catch that? I dissed option number two, the preterist view. I just dissed option number three, the amillennial view, which means I'm going to choose option number four. You guys ready for that one? So let me share with you what me and Jesus believe about prophecy right now. I'm just kidding. I take a much more humble approach to this than that. But I am going to give you my best shot for this fourth option. The fourth option is what is called the premillennial view. And again, for those of you who care, it comes in lots of different forms, dispensational premillennialism, covenantal premillennialism, historic premillennialism, but I'm not going to get into any of that. It's clearly, though, the most literal of all views. Premillennial simply means those who believe that Christ is going to come back before the millennium of Revelation 20 and then literally set up shop here on earth for a thousand years, a 1,000-year reign of Christ. So we call it premillennial. And it's a very literal view. And the way that a premillennialist like me would read Daniel 9, now don't miss this, is that we would take face value the 490 years as well as we will take at face value the six-fold description of what will happen during those 490 years, as well we'll take face value the 49 years and the additional 434 years, complete with the descriptions of what happens. And so what this view basically asserts is this. Do you remember when I told you that verse 24 is the key to the interpretation of this a premillennial view sees verse 24 as a description of what will happen in the end of time as we know it when christ returns to usher in the end of the age there's no other way to read it folks it says that sin will literally be put to rest righteousness will literally reign forever vision and prophecy will end because god is here now ushering in the end of the age and the eternal state And so this is the most literal and straightforward reading of verse 24 and the sixfold description. It's got to be talking about Christ's second coming and the glorious end of sin when He returns. Now to get to this point, the premillennial view sees verses 25 and 26a, the second handle I talked to you about earlier, the second handle of the 49 years and then the 434 years for a total of 483 years as referring to the time period of when Ezra decreed that Jerusalem should be rebuilt, which was 458 B.C., to its completion in 409 bc interestingly a period of 49 years and then from 409 bc to 25 a.d interestingly a period of 434 years that leads us up to Jesus' baptism jesus was baptized in about 25 to 26 a.d and this was the beginning of his earthly ministry which is daniel 9:25 says the coming of an anointed one and so simply see folks that this second handle these first 697s or 483 years fits neatly the period of when the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem to the time of the anointed one Jesus in his first earthly coming. And then as we all know Christ was crucified for our sins, he rose again on the 3rd day, he ascended into heaven promising to come again, and the keys to ha- understanding what happens next are two very seemingly insignificant words that I'm going to argue with you today are, or put before you today are very significant words and they're the words found at the beginning of verse 26 where it says, and after. Do you see that there? And after the 62 weeks, which is the total of 483 years, and after an anointed one shall be cut off. In other words, it doesn't tell us how long after. It assumes that there could be a gap between the 69 weeks and the final week, even an indefinite time period. It says, and after, but it doesn't say how long after. And then when you read the description of what happens during this final week, the final seven years, you realize there's no way that this has happened yet. And so we must still be in this gap. It says in verses 26 to 27 that the anointed one, Jesus, will be cut off. He'll have nothing. There will be war. Desolations are decreed. Someone will make a nasty covenant for this one week and bring abominations that cause desolation. I mean, when you read that, folks, it sounds very similar to what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 with the great tribulation, which hasn't happened yet. It sounds very similar to what Paul will talk about, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, as John calls him, who is to come, which again, hasn't happened yet. And so a premillennial view of Daniel 9 here says that that final week has not happened yet. We're still in the gap. And so add all this up, folks. I think this literally fits best the plain reading of Daniel 9. The first handle of verse 24 is the bird's eye view of the full 70 weeks, what is going to be accomplished by the end of time the defeat of sin, the establishment of God's eternal and righteous order. And then the second handle of verses 25 to 26a begin a time period of 483 years, the time that comes from the time of Ezra rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and the temple to the first coming of Christ. Then there's a huge gap between that and the final week in which a final week will come, seven years, which will be a great tribulation period complete with an antichrist against God and his people. I think this best fits the plain and literal meaning of the prophecy here, complete with all of its descriptions. And I think it's confirmed by the rest of Scripture as a whole. Now, I told you about 14 and a half minutes ago that your head would be swimming It's probably swimming right now. Because i got to tell you, I've been studying this stuff since seminary. I spent the last year reviewing all my notes on prophecy and trying to get a handle on this again. And my head still swims when I consider all of this. And so if your head is swimming right now, don't panic. I get it. It's why we called this series Future 401 because it's kind of the calculus level of prophecy And what I want to do in the few moments that we have remaining today is to try to pull all of this together in a few relatively easy to grasp principles that the vast majority of scholars agree on when it comes to Daniel 9 and what it's saying. In fact, I want to share with you three principles, and this is now bringing us to your outline, in which scholars tend to agree on these three things, either from Daniel 9 or at the very least from other places in Scripture. And I believe Daniel 9 is saying these things. Three things that you and I can take away from our look in Daniel here that we can carry with us into our week and our understanding of God and the future. And here's the first one. Look up here on the screen. And that is that Christ came the first time 2,000 years ago to bring God to us, and He will come again to bring us to God. Man, this is the most touching for me. Christ came 2,000 years the first time to bring God to us. We're going to celebrate that this Christmas. Emmanuel, remember that from Isaiah? Emmanuel, God with us. That's why Jesus came the first time, to bring heaven to earth, God to us, so that we might be forgiven of our sins But what Daniel is saying here and throughout the majority of his prophecy is he's going to come again, but this time to bring us home to be with God forever. Yeah, some of you like that. That's good. You can clap at that. And, and, And so folks, I think this is the heart of what Daniel is saying here. And again, it's why verse 24 is so significant. Because I think verse 24 here is setting up an understanding of what the eternal state is going to be about when Christ returns. we'll unpack this more in a second here. But just think about it. An eternal state of no more sin, no more tears, everlasting righteousness, as Daniel says, and and an end to all of your questions. I love when people say they're going to ask God all these questions. I don't think you will. I think you're going to have enough knowledge by the time Jesus comes back or when He comes back and ushers in the eternal state that our questions will be answered. Daniel says there'll be a sealing of both vision and prophet. The stuff will be over. And so some 2,500 years ago, Daniel is predicting that someday Christ is going to return. He leads us through this understanding of what the eternal state will be about. And then the fact that it's going to lead up to the first coming of Christ, then eventually a tribulation, which we'll get to in a minute, all setting up the return of jesus christ he came the first time to bring us to god he or bring god to us he's going to come the second time to bring us home to be with him i think that's what daniel is getting at here and folks as i was sitting in my office this week thinking about this first point i thought i know how some of you think and let's just be honest here this morning i know that some of you at this point are tempted to think well jamie that's a good thing for my grandmother to know because she's almost dead you know, and the fact that she's almost dead, she better start thinking about these kind of things, you know, because someday she's going to die and it'll probably, and let's just be honest, someday she's going to die, it's going to be real soon, and I hope people give her the hope of heaven and the hope of what is to come, but I'm 46 years old, I don't think about that very much, so what do you got for me next? Let's pause right now. I don't think we should think that way. I really don't. I don't think that Daniel 9 is a prophecy given just for your grandmother. Amen? I think this is a prophecy given to all of us that is gritty, that is heaven meet earth, that is the kind of stuff that is coming down the pike that God wants you and I to bank on each moment of each day. He wants us to, yeah, somebody likes us back there. Anyways... He wants us to get to the point in our, in our understanding of Him that whether we're going through tough times or not, whether we're thinking of heaven or not, to realize that no matter how good or bad things get this side of heaven, He's got a better plan. That's why I called this message the unstoppable plan of God. Because you don't hear anything else. What I want you to walk away with from Daniel 9 is that there's stuff coming down the pike. God's in absolute control of it. And it's going to happen. And though it's going to get bad before it gets worse, we'll see that under point two, the the point is is that he's going to come again, and when he does, it's going to be a glorious, glorious day. And this is relevant for you and I every moment of every day. I I love how C.S. Lewis says it in his little analogy I've given you before. He says, someday the grand director of the play is going to come out onto the stage. And when he does, it's all over. The curtain's going to fall, the music's going to stop, and the applause is going to begin. It's going to be an amazing day. Joel, in his prophecy, calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. We'll see why it's terrible here in a few minutes for some people. But it's great for you and I that are followers of Jesus and trust Him with everything in us. Paul would say in Philippians 2, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is not some fanciful, quaint wish that is reserved for older people. It's a rough and tumble, full of grit hope that is for anybody who dares to take God at His word. And so this week we did three funerals here at your church. We told you that last Sunday. We've been kind of heavy on funerals here lately, tragically speaking. Diane Baldo, Joe Baldo's wife, went home to be with the Lord. She was 53 years old. And then Daryl, on Monday, did a funeral for Brooke Porterfield, 23 years old, way too young to go home to be with the Lord. And then we did a funeral for Ed Lopez. And I got to tell you, this week at your church, because I did one of the funerals, and Daryl did one, and Pat did one, I got to tell you, at those funerals, I can promise you that all three of us talked about this great hope that we're bumping up against right now the hope that those people who passed on because they knew the Lord Jesus are with Him. They are with Him forever. They are more happier there than they ever were on their best day here. And those families are clinging to that hope, folks, that their lost loved ones are with the Lord and they're going to see them again. And that's not a fanciful wish. That's not pie in the sky. That's rough and tumble, very real Christian hope. And that's why it's been given to you and I so that we have that same hope for our own lives so make no mistake a right reading of daniel 9 the first reading shows us that jesus came the first time and he's coming again now there's more notice with me a second key thing that god through daniel reveals to us about what is to come and this is where it gets a little bit worse but we got to wrestle with this and that is that before jesus comes again there's going to be a great tribulation Again, this is something that many people don't understand about prophecy, but God has made this so clear from multiple vantage points in the Bible, like here in Daniel 9, Jesus in Matthew 24, the book of Revelation. Look at how Daniel says it to us here, the angel speaking in verses 26 and 27. He says, "...its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war." Desolations are decreed, He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week he shall put an end of sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Folks, I wish it was otherwise, but one of the things that you and I need to walk away from our understanding of prophecy with is a key understanding that the Bible says that our future holds a great tribulation. Those are Jesus' words, a great tribulation. And it's going to be a time when the forces of evil that are against God and His people will rise up in one last stand to attempt to destroy God and His church. It will be led by a human leader, what the New Testament calls the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, a person who's going to unite many people to bring great persecution upon God's people. Daniel says desolations are decreed. He, the Antichrist, will make a strong covenant with many for one week. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Pretty heavy stuff. And again, if we're reading Daniel chapter 9 right, this period is going to last about seven years. That's why we call it a seven-year tribulation. We have no idea when it will come, but as Jesus says in Matthew 24, it will be like nothing ever seen. And one of the biggest debates that Christians debate, and I can't even believe I want to touch this one because I really ticked off some people in the first service, but I think after three years of being your pastor, I've earned a right to share my biblical opinion here, is whether or not Christians will have to go through this tribulation. Again, we call it a pre-tribulational rapture or a mid-tribulational rapture or a post-tribulational rapture. And the Bible isn't completely clear on this. So will Christians have to endure this or will, be re, or will we be raptured up before it or somehow in the middle of it or not till the end of it? And, and though I understand all the differing views and I understand even that this church has historically believed in what we call a pre-tribulational rapture, I got to tell you, I really wrestle with that one. I'm just being honest biblically. I, I've looked at this every which way I can And when I look at all the major passages that even hint to the second coming of Christ, I don't see where it says that we're going to be raptured up before it. Uh, Daniel 9 doesn't say that. Matthew 24 doesn't say that. The book of Revelation doesn't say that. The only passage that talks about a rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it does say we're going to be raptured up, but it doesn't say it's going to happen before, during, or after a tribulation. And so some of you are saying, well, where do they get this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture? It's more from biblical logic than anything else. And that's okay. It's just that I'm not sure I, I buy it just because we put some logical things together. The logical logic basically goes like this, that because Jesus said he could come back at any time and we don't know when that time is, then how could believers go through a seven-year period of tribulation when we could just count from the beginning of it seven years and we'd know when he's coming back? So they argue it wouldn't make sense that we would go through the tribulation period. They also argue that why would God ever allow us to go through His wrath being poured out or being allowed to be poured out upon this earth during a tribulation time. I'm not sure I have all the answers to this. This is why I still wrestle with the issue. But you know, when I read Matthew chapter 24 and Jesus talking about the tribulation time, He talks about the fact that the elect are going to go through it. He talks about the fact that those of us who are elect, who are His he seems to suggest they're going to go through this time. And so I tend to lean toward the reality that we're not going to be spared, or those of us who are living at that time, the tribulation that is to come. And though that's hard for me to say to you, and I hope I'm wrong, I've said to my pre-tribulation friends all throughout the years, I said, golly, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. I can only do with the Bible what I believe it's saying. But listen to this. If I'm right, if believers are going to have to go through a tribulation time, um, I think it makes what you and I are going through now look like child's play, and that at the very least, we can stop whining now knowing that there's those who are going to have to go through a lot worse in the future. Amen? I, I mean, seriously. And, and I know some of you think, well, that's kind of goofy, Jamie. No, it's really not. I think of that every day i'm telling you on days that i and i have bad days on days i'm in really bad days you know whether it was my wife or my kids or with the church or whatever and, and i'm going to bed that night i'm thinking man this was just a really bad awful day you know what i think to myself on my worst day i think boy am i ever blessed do you guys ever think like that i i just think there are people in this earth who have it so much worse there are going to be people in the future if i'm reading the bible right that have it a lot worse And they're going to be asked to persevere during that time and remain faithful to God. And so if they can do it, I can do it. And I sit there and say to myself, Rasmussen, stop your whining. Stop your woe is me. You can trust God. As Romans 8 says, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And he even uses the word tribulation, Paul does in Romans 8. And so nothing can separate us from God. And again, if I'm reading the Bible right and it's going to get worse for some, then certainly I have no right to complain now about things that I go through. I'm still required to go through these things and to be faithful to Him nonetheless. That's kind of the way I see the tribulation in the Scriptures. But again, we've got lots of room for debate in this church. I had a woman very angry with me in the first service, very angry that I shared this view because, again, it goes historically against what Daryl has taught But I just want to let you guys know, I've talked to Daryl about this. He's copacetic with it. He calls me a heretic, but he's copacetic with it. No, he doesn't. I mean, half of his seminary staff agree with me. His son agrees with me. I mean, so I'm telling you, this is a debatable issue. And and so some of us have seen only one side. We need to recognize that that it is kind of up for grabs and there's a legitimate debate on this. So please, no emails calling me a heretic. I'm not. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We're all on the same page. Just that I might read a little bit different, all right? I know you're going to still send me emails. So here's the third thing that, uh, that we need to grab onto. And that's that once we understand the tribulation, and boy, I love this one, and that is that for the follower of Jesus, and many of you are going to love this, God's plan for the future will bring ultimate peace and rest. That's what you need to understand. He's coming back to bring us to Him. And then there will be a tribulation that precedes that. But in the end, what you need to know is that God wins. God wins. How, how do we know this? Look at how Daniel ends his prophecy. I, I love this wording. Daniel 9.27, it says, Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I love that phrase, decreed end. Because I've got to ask you, whose decreed end is it, and who's the one decreeing? Whose decreed end is it? The evil one, the Antichrist's and who's the one doing the decreeing god god or jesus depending on how you interpret this but it's the same and so either way daniel ends the prophecy here in chapter 9 or the angel does saying in the end god has decreed this this is his unstoppable plan it's gonna happen he's the one in control and folks that's one of the most cool things about prophecy whether you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Micah, Joel, Hosea, whether you read the book of Jude in the New Testament or the book of Revelation, you're going to end up in the same place at the end of them, and that's that they all end on a high note saying, but guess what? God wins. He's in control of this all in the end, and it's going to be a glorious day when He comes. In fact, let me just close our time here this morning reading from you from the famous book on prophecy, the book of Revelation, the second to last chapter out of chapter 21 when it's describing the new heaven and the new earth. I want to read for you verses 3 and 4, Revelation 21, 3 and 4, halfway through a description of what's going to come at the end when we're finally united with God. And all i got to say is if this doesn't grab you, i got nothing else. If this doesn't grab you, i, I got nothing else when it comes... Trying to encourage us on what is to come. Describing the new heaven and new earth, look up here on the screen, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no more mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I love that. I'm just knee-neck-deep in sin and pain and mourning all week long as a pastor dealing with people. And when I think that God is in so much control that someday He's going to usher in a day where He says, all the shenanigans stop, you will be fully at home and rest with me for all of eternity, I just can't contain myself that's when I break into praise. A few years ago, yeah, amen. Just to put this into perspective, and this will be done, a few years ago, this was really funny. I was at a conference where James McDonald was speaking. It was kind of a private conference doing some fundraising. You might have heard James on the radio here. James and I went to seminary, and he's just a fireball of a speaker, and he always tells it like it is. So James is speaking there, and he's speaking on heaven, and and he was just addressing the fact that, you know, that some people tend to think if heaven's going to be boring or what's going to go on at heaven. And he's just kind of, you know, trying to fire people up about heaven. And this conference is being held in a five-star hotel. It was at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. So we're all there dressed extremely nice, you know, in our, in our three-piece suits, Broadmoor Hotel. And James gets up there and he's delivering this talk on heaven. And he basically says, he says, look, I have got to tell you, heaven is going to make this place look like a dump. And I I never thought anybody would call the Broadmoor a dump. He says heaven is going to make this place look like a dump. And he says, and you know, many of you go and back to your churches and you whine to your pastor about the music. I don't think he meant Scottsdale Bible. You whine to your pastor about the music. You whine about the programs. You whine about this. He said, I just got to tell you, in heaven, no one's going to be whining. He said, there's not going to you're not going to get to heaven and look around and go, what? This is it. Like, you know, he goes, you're not going to get to heaven and sort of huddle with some small group of people going, I didn't like that sermon. He goes, that's not going to happen. <laughs> he says, when you get to heaven, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be joyful. It's going to be pain-free. You're going to be in the presence of God. And he says, and you're going to love it. And I sat there in the Broadmoor. I thought, I can't wait. I can't wait for that kind of thing. And that's the hope that prophecy gives you in me, is that at the end of the day, God says, Yeah, there's going to be some tough times to get there. Pray you don't have to go through it. But at the end of the day, it's my future. It's the unstoppable plan of God, he says. And it will be a glorious time. So hang in there, Christian. Walk with him this week. Love him and praise him. Endure whatever he calls you to go through, knowing that someday he's going to right every wrong. Someday all the pain will be gone and we'll be in his presence. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the prophecies you give us in Scripture, though very difficult at times to understand and certainly worthy of a lot of discussion and even debate. Hopefully, at the end of the day, gets us all unified on what is to come. And though, Lord, you might disagree on the details, we don't disagree on the big mountain-top experiences of the fact that Jesus is coming again and he's coming to bring us to you and that there will be a difficult time before that, a tribulation period, And that, Father, after that time, Jesus will be here setting up shop, I believe, for a thousand years to rule on this earth and then ushering in the end of the age Whereas Revelation just informed us will be a time like we can't even imagine. And, Father, I pray that if there's any of us here who attempted to treat this like a pipe dream or a fanciful wish reserved for one's grandmother that we wouldn't do that. But, Father, we would see this as something relevant to each and every one of us Monday through Saturday, as we ponder eternal things. So God, give us hope, give us encouragement. Remind us, as Paul does, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name the whole church says together, amen. God bless you, we'll see you guys next week.